Hi, I'm Manu Ente Reme, Ichab from Star Trek Voyager and the executive producer of The Circuit Urbiesa, and you're listening to Neil Before Pod. Neil Before Blog presents Neil Before Pod. Hello and welcome to another web-slinging edition of Neil Before Pod. I'm your host Craig and this is a very special episode for me. The animated series Spectacular Spider-Man is my favourite version of the character outside of the comics and I've been looking to put together a podcast about this show for a while so I can articulate how much I love it. Now my dream has come true and we're doing an episode about it. So here for a further dose of Spider-Man chat is Aaron. Ular. Hello. How is it going? It goes well. How is it going with you? It is going well. I'm all psyched to talk some more Spider-Man about a week after the... Was it two weeks after the film came out? I think it's two weeks. I lose track of time, actually. I'll believe whatever you say. <laughs> yeah. It's some time after the film came out. Although people could be listening to this in the year 3000, so it's been quite some time. I feel our content will be somewhat dated and only listened to by historians in that case, <laughs> so I wouldn't worry about it. I would take historians be like, this is a an example of a podcast from the twenty first century. Let's uh, let's listen to it. Whatever, but yeah, Spectacular Spider Man was a cartoon that aired in two thousand eight through two thousand and nine, and it was a. Uh, I mean, it's yet another Spider Man reboot, I suppose. Uh, in animated form it was meant to cater to a new generation of spider fans and it aired on the kids wb according to wikipedia um that ain't where i saw it no it's not where i saw it either i'm not going to say where i saw it for legal reasons indeed but, but yeah it ran for two years um kids cartoon and what are your thoughts on this kids cartoon I mean, I don't know why I'm emphasising that. But. Well, I wonder actually as well, when you say that, what the age group was. I can't decide whether it's, is it sort of early teens actually rather than kids, maybe. It's a Saturday morning cartoon, so. So it is going to be kids then, yeah. Aimed at young kids for sure, yeah. Um, either way, uh, it is probably something I enjoyed more than the Spider-Man I watched as a kid, actually. Um, although that could just be memory issues, because I do remember saying on the last Spider-Man podcast that I don't remember it too well, although I, I'm more of a memory of Iceman and Firestar than I do of that. Spider-Man um, and his amazing friends. Absolutely, that was great. Enjoyed that as a kid. Can't remember much of it, but definitely remember enjoying it. Um, one of the noticeable things, though, about Spectacular Spider-Man is that even though it is a kid's show... 
I've taken quite a lot of notes here where I thought that it's plotting and execution was far superior than a lot of adult shows I'm watching at the moment. I think that might be in the writing or art direction of it. And I don't really understand why more effort would go into little 20 minute things for kids than seems to go into an adult show. Cause it's not like they're less complicated. They are, they are complicated still, but full marks for that. It's it's very well done. Yeah, I'm of the opinion that um, I mean I said something similar after the the first of the Michael Bay produced Ninja Turtles reboots came out. You know, it's it's almost like everyone involved was thinking it's just for kids. We don't have to try. But you know, if you're making something for kids, I mean, as adults we can watch something that kind of sucks and and we can deal with it. And you know, but with kids you're kind of making some kind of formative experience for them. So treating them like idiots isn't a good idea i don't think i think it's um, a bit of encouragement to put some effort in if you're if you're making something then you might as well put some effort in and the people involved in this show certainly did uh, it feels like it's written for fans of spider-man rather than kids cartoon you know normal kids cartoon viewers sort of so i don't know what age group they're aiming at but it's clear that the writing staff were passionate enough about the source material to create something that you know, is a good jumping on point for the character and is also intelligently written. So, you know, kids could watch it, young kids could watch it as a it's a colourful guy fighting colourful villains every week and there's you know, there's quips and there's jokes and, and everything's all bright and uh, and fast moving but, you know, when you get that bit older or when you're, say adult age, you can watch it and you can see character development and you can see uh sophisticated car- uh, story going through it and you know it's it's all very simple but simple doesn't mean bad because you know you can make something that just works everything ties together nicely everything just works in it and i, th- I was really impressed i think it's my favorite version of spider-man outside of the comics and that includes tom holland totally good i don't know the comics so i don't have that real connection but i did if I had to choose one to watch out of the cartoons and any of the films, then I would actually come back to this as a definitive version that gets everything in, as you say, from Spider-Man. They don't miss a beat on, on any of the Spider-Man lore, I don't think, and manage to capture some of the most important parts of who we've come to know Peter Parker is right from, right from the first episode. Yeah, and... It's also um, it's also nicely updated as well. You know, it's not just... Um, I mean, we talked a bit about diversity in the last Spider-Man podcast, but it's not just, you know, a bunch of white kids sitting around. I mean, Stan Lee always talked about how uh, when he wrote Spider-Man in the 60s, he said that he was writing what he knew. He was writing the high schools that he knew about and, you know, and the people that he would meet. But New York and the world has changed a lot since then. And he was always keen for it to be updated, so it's good that characters switch ethnicities and and things like that. And it hasn't, it doesn't make any difference whatsoever to who they are or what their function is within the show as well. No, I think it's a tricky one though, because I've been thinking about this ever since Homecoming, and I think I'm still on board with the people that say. Yes, it's it definitely we want to update these things and make them more realistic, but I think what I was struggling with with Homecoming was they 
specifically pushed it as being diverse, and therefore they came into a problem. Spectacular Spider-Man's... I don't know what was said about it. I'd be interested to hear what, what was actually said at the time. But I've not seen anybody pushing it and saying it's diverse. At the moment, to me, it just is a bit more diverse. Peter Parker happens to still be a white guy. The the main villain, or turns out to be the main villain, is, is still a white guy. But no emphasis seems to have been pu- placed on pushing it as a diverse content. And therefore, it, it seems to settle more easily into just fitting into an updated slot. And I prefer that. And I think actually Homecoming might have suffered too much for the producer's excitement on that front. Yeah, although there aren't as many ethnic switches in this this one. There's essentially Liz, I think, is about the only one. Um, I mean, there are, but there are diverse people kicking around. Um, so what you've got is like Lizzie's brother, who turns out to be the molten man. He's uh, well, he's obviously her her brother, so you know he's he's the same race. Uh, but you've got an emphasis on like Joe Robertson's son, uh, who wasn't at high school with him in the comics and and things like that. But I mean. I don't know if they were marketing it as such. I mean, they marketed it as just a Spider-Man cartoon, as far as I can remember. But you also had the um, people commented on the fact that you know it they changed a few things, and I think for kids as well, it just shows them that you know ethnic diversity is a normal thing. You know, and it's, it's just kind of with it just being there, it can be watched, and then it just looks. It's just something that they would grow up thinking was normal. I mean, assuming this. Well, yeah. This show makes an impression on people. Yeah, I think that makes it you know, more normal, more acceptable. It also means you're not challenging anything when you're watching it, which ruins viewing. I think if yeah. you tried to watch it with a diversity pair of glasses on, you'd quickly start seeing how many of the v- villains are all white guys. And it would still come out as not that diverse in the grand scheme of things. But they haven't pushed it hard. They have tried to make Peter's basic life more normal and therefore acceptable to the watching audience so they don't challenge it. And without that big glowing claim on the front, it feels like they've gone in the right direction. And I'm happy with that. Yeah. Um, before we continue on with it to get into more depth, you think we should fire some kind of spoiler web shooter or something? Because, I mean, I know it's a f- it's it's almost ten years old now. Jeez, that's insane. But um, people might be listening who haven't seen it and don't want it spoiled. Somebody might choose to go back and watch it. That's possible. I mean, yeah. there's other things we could probably say without spoiling it. But if you really want to get into the meat and drink, then you might have to shoot your web, as it were. Yeah, let's do it. Let's just get into the spoiler section now. Right, okay, now we can say whatever whatever we want. So, um, I mean, did you have anything else on the kind of general background of the show before we kind of dig in? The speed of it I found very interesting, and I comment on that because I've gone back and watched some of the cartoons I used to watch as a kid over the years, just out of curiosity, a noticeable favourite of mine was the old Transformers cartoons. And when I watch those, the speed is ridiculously fast. It is aimed at someone's brain who is working twice as fast as mine does now. And I, I used to be, you know, that speed. And 
noticeable about this spectacular Spider-Man, though, was it still moves really quickly to make sure it's targeted correctly for the the younger audience with the quicker brains. But oddly, I find I found that it wasn't too fast for an adult. And that surprised me. I was expecting to watch this and go, oh, plot point, plot point, plot point. You know, not that I can't keep up, but just that it was going too fast for me to think I was getting any individual enjoyment out of any individual point because it wasn't emotional enough. But the speed that they go at is still introducing the plot point so you don't get bored, but stays long enough on any individual emotional point that even an adult, I think, can get something out of it. And I'm quite stunned by that because... I'd like to think they did that on purpose. And if they did, I'd have to say that's one of the best things about the show. Yeah, um, it does move quickly because they're telling a story that could be told in... You know, if if you imagine it as a 42-minute Flash-style TV series, for instance, you know, or any of the modern superhero stuff, you know, it would be a 42-minute thing. And, and you could sort of see where they would maybe expand on, on certain things. And you'd probably be sitting there bored, sitting through... You know, Peter explaining his absences for the millionth time. Um, but the way they, yeah, the way they structure it in such a way that you kind of get the, you get the the main thrust of what it's supposed to be about. And you get a little bit of depth because at the end of the day, it's a Spider-Man show. And Spider-Man is always about, more about what Peter Parker's going through, what his act, what consequences come from the actions he takes. So, you know, he runs away to save someone's life as Spider-Man and someone's annoyed at him for not being there or not being, um, or breaking a promise or, or whatever. And that's kind of, so it's important that you, you have that established world. So it's kind of, I actually care about the fact that Gwen is annoyed that he's not there rather than, you know, oh, he's just gone again. Well, they, I think they, they do well at all levels there and definitely I agree with those points but I'm thinking of the of the overall arcing of how they introduce plot lines the I think is it in, in the first couple of episodes there are three villains on screen at once and there's actually two more in introduction if you count uh, Dr. Connors and Eddie Brock as being introduced because they're going to have uh, a, a plot based around them. That's that's five people at once. <laughs> now, I railed at the Tobey Maguire's third film, which I now can't name Spider-Man or anything. 3. You can Spider-Man 3. Is that all it is? Dull. Yeah, right. I railed at that film for having three villains because it just made the plot messy, jumping backwards and forwards, no consequence in any of them. It was just terrible. And here... They've managed to get five characters on screen at once in 20 minutes, and it yeah. doesn't feel bad. And I'm just, again, stunned at how good that is, especially when you think that the plots lead into each other. Because I was watching so the first few episodes. You get episode two, Electro appears, and at the end of that episode, his power alters the injection that Dr. Connors is going to take and make him into the lizard in episode three, which then also sets up the cure possibility that Peter Parker ums and ahs over in two or further episodes later down in the series. And again, all of this is done in 20 minutes each episode without it feeling overwhelmed. It just makes you think that anybody who's out there trying to create adult TV or film should go back and watch this stuff 
and see how basic plotting is done and take note. Yeah, narrative economy, it's brilliant, yeah. Because the first episode, you've got the enforcers, the vulture, you've got um, Eddie Brock, as you said, Doc Connors is there, and Norman Osborn is also there. So, yeah, they're doing a lot, they're juggling a lot of balls, and it's, you know, they're already, they've just started, and it's it's really impressive, and you kind of, obviously, you get a sense that, you know, Osborne, right, he'll be important later on, and obviously anybody that's seen the, the Raimi films even will, will know where Norman Osborne's going, or yeah. think they know where Norman Osborne's going. Uh, well, you know which kind of direction, how far involved he's going to be, but yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and then you've got the Vulture, and you find out enough about him, he was a, you know, a business rival to Osborne, and it's bad that Osborne stole all his ideas or whatever and that that's enough of an origin story for him to just car- carry the episode and then the enforcers are just hired goons and again that's enough uh, but if, like Homecoming has actually four villains in it as well but yeah. uh, Tombs is only the main one so you've got two versions of the Shocker and the Tinkerer who's you know just there tinkering but uh, but if you add on top of that the non- verbal sort of easter egg setups as well then you get this extra layer and this is this the foreshadowing that they do is again i'm going to keep coming back to it it's so much better than a lot of other shows that is that you would think people are putting more effort into because the adult mind demands it more but little bits throughout like you see black cat in the halloween episode doesn't say anything is never uh, part of the main plot, but is doing something relevant to her character. She's out there in costume, in full view of everybody, because she can, because it's Halloween, clearly doing what she does, robbing people. <laughs> and it, it's just this little moment that goes by that, that if you can look back on, you can connect to. And that's in all of it. The few of the other ones that I noticed them doing quite well is, is even with the emotional plotting, there's a there's times when both Liz and Gwen get facial expressions in reaction to something Peter's done or in response to something they've done and the camera stays with them for not too long it's not too po-faced it's it's just a second or two to show you an emotional reaction and then it moves on and you take something from that and I think in a lot of adult shows another character would have turned up and said, Liz, you're looking unhappy. Why is that? And we'd have to have it explained. Yeah. Whereas we've got people watching this who would go, Liz looks unhappy because of the event that just occurred. I'm a human being. I understand emotion and I need that explained to me. And they reckon kids can get this, but for some reason as adults, we need it all put down in exposition. Yeah. So again, thumbs up to the show. For for these tiny little bits of detail that are, that are just placed throughout, yeah. And I think we should talk a bit about the first episode actually, because it's you know it sets everything up. And uh, now I'm thinking about everything they established. So you get the hint of the big man in that episode as well. It's just I'm sure it's just a voice on a phone, or is that happening? Yes. But there's that hint, and then you've also got the establishing of Sandman and Rhino. You know they're they're just they're they don't have their powers obviously but they're just people they're just criminals that Spider-Man's been catching all summer and yes. that's reason enough for them to hate him you know they're not big time criminals they just don't like him and uh, yes. 
it's it's good that you know it's it gives them a pre-existing relationship without doing that much work really just yeah he keeps catching them they're annoyed therefore once they have the ability to get back at him that's their motivation and they like to steal it's, stuff yeah absolutely and more setting up for the future there's yeah. um there's a key point about the first episode though that i think stands out even more than that which is the fact that it only alludes to the origin story and doesn't do it. Yeah. I mean, as you're watching, if you had uh, a drinking game or a checklist, you would still get drunk or complete your sets because they do actually go through them all. They'd get in the great power line. They do get the spider bite. It does mention his uncle's dead and there's, or at least his uncle's not there anymore. There's, there's, there's something in it and there's the humor, there's the jokes and Without doing an origin story, they've still set up Peter so you know who he is, and Spider-Man who he knows who he is, in a way that never held back the story. It it was done with a classic narration, mm. so you have to like that. You have to like the fact that he's talking to himself. Uh, if you don't like that, you're not going to like any of it, but then arguably you wouldn't like any Spider-Man at all, so I think yeah. tough. Um, he talks to himself a lot. Yeah. But if you... If you go, if you if that is sitting well with you, then I think you get the full setup without the drag of the origin story, and again at that good speed. It's a good first episode. Very few shows have a good first episode. I think it's the most difficult thing to do ever because you'll hear so many people say to you, "Oh, I like this show," but you've got to give it four episodes for it to find its feet or get through series one and then it's excellent and my argument to that is always no no i don't i don't have to do homework to watch a show yeah. if i don't like it i'm not going to watch it so this does fulfill that need for me it opens with an excellent first episode and a, and a good part of that is it's starting essentially in the middle so you know the first yeah. shot of the ep- of the first episode is him swinging through the city. It's like okay, we're in full Spider-Man mode. He has the setup. He has his he has his costume. He's swinging about. He's stopping crimes. He's quipping. You know that's that everything the character is. And it, when it comes to the origin stuff, it's alluded to but covered later. Um, the nineties show did that as well. The first episode was just you know it was Night of the Lizard. It was called and it was again the full setup was there and you were expected just to run with it and people will run with it I think especially with Spider-Man because he's so so commonly known same with Superman you know you could start a Superman cartoon without blowing up Krypton and people would get it people would be okay well they would but the interesting thing about it is that the show does do setup because all of those lines as I say they're all in there you can take them off great power and so on the the key point though is the first episode sets up the foreground of what he's doing as he say fighting the villains and who he is so he is this guy who feels the need obviously to save the day but also is doing it with his quips and his jokes so that goes to his personality so they set peter up yeah what they do though as you say by starting in the middle they've moved it on a bit they don't feel the need to bog you down in rules and uh, and they don't even have to move him on to an experienced Spider-Man to do it. They can set up the, the teenager that already exists. Because it's very noticeable in the first 
episode or two, he gets taken down by the enforcers. He's actually not good enough in a fight yet to beat them, so he's got that to learn. Yeah. And I think he's emotionally not quite adjusted to his full power set yet because he thinks he can date a cheerleader and he's got that to learn. So they do set up an established character but still manage to get it very much as the beginning of a story for that character, which is, again, a balance that it must be very difficult to put down, but excellently done. Yeah, and it it tells you a lot about him, as you said, just early on. I mean, it's clear that he's had a summer of... he's He's a teenager who's had a summer of not seeing anyone else of his own age, so he's kind of built up this, um... He's built this hype around himself now that he's got these powers. He feels more confident and, and he thinks that everything's going to be different at high school. So he's talking about, you know, he's talking about how he's going to be top of the social ladder and everything like that. And so he's having this great first night or last night before school starts. And then immediately he gets to school and nothing has changed for him. Everyone still dismiss or everyone popular still dismisses him. And, you know, he's, um, he's still regarded as a bit of a loser. And I liked that because. I just, I just, it's that kind of teenage naivety, you know. He's he's believed his own hype, and he has no reason to. But it's it's a very teenage thing to do. Yeah, and it sets up his problems for the rest of the well, possibly both seasons actually, because he never really moves past that. He's always got that to deal with. Because even when he gets into the popular crowd, arguably through Liz, he's never really fully accepted. So it's no. yeah, that's the foundation for. For for both seasons, plot, uh, school yeah. plot. Yeah, and I like that he has the two friends and uh, Gwen and Li- Gwen and Li- Gwen and Harry as well, because you know it, they play up the loner aspect in the comics, and and you can still have that. I mean, he's just you know his he has his own little clique at school, but he's not he's still not popular. You know, Harry's kind of a a dork as well, and Gwen is. I mean, she looks too. She looks stereotypically nerdy, you know. The, the and they even do the thing later in the series where she suddenly takes her glasses off and she's amazingly, amazingly hot, according to everyone else around her, kind of thing. Yes. Um, which is, I don't know. I'll, I'll let them have a pass on it because they, they, at least they built the character before they did that. It wasn't just a you know three episodes in, they decided Gwen's going to be hot now, but. Um, and you'll never get to no, they established her they established her defining feature as her intelligence yeah. from the start and you get you get a long way into it before anything else is added on that that would be too stereotypical for for a romantic plot yeah yeah and it's a very lived in friendship as well you know harry's been away with his father all summer and has hated it so like he's just he's just happy to see his friend again and I don't think there's a reason given why Gwen doesn't see Peter for an entire three months or eight weeks or however long summer holidays last in the US. He just hasn't seen her for some reason. No, it, it doesn't. It, it doesn't falter for that. But no. Uh, no. Yeah, it's uh, and Harry's the one to immediately make fun of him for asking out a cheerleader and all this stuff, and it's. Yeah, it's a, it's nicely built up very quickly. You get a sense of who the what the hierarchy is at school very quickly. You know, Peter's on the wrong end of it, uh, as as of course he will be, even though he feels like he should be more. But um, he gets kind of knocked down a peg almost immediately. Yes, that's um, 
there's one scene in the first Tobey Maguire movie that I think was truly excellent when it came to establishing that connection between uh, between Peter and the bullies that I don't think will actually be surpassed. But that said, the consistency of what they do in Spectacular Spider-Man is much higher, mm-hmm. if only because it lasts longer. It can really give you a proper school uh, time frame where he goes through several iterations of a connection with people in his class. He can develop that on, and he's always still at school. There's never any point where they're suddenly graduating, and you think, oh, well, all the school stuff's done then, so we haven't had time to go into it. it, it but that's that's probably just the benefit it gets through being longer running than the film could possibly have been. Yeah, the the first Tobey Maguire film has 15 minutes of school scenes, if that. I mean, it's probably much yes. less than that, actually. But what was the, the scene you were referring to that establishes that? There's Is it the trip up? The part? point... Sorry? Is it the bit where he's tripped up, or is it later than that? Um, potentially. I don't quite remember that. It's the scene where they're in the locker room and he first gets his spider sense, and he detects that, I assume it's Flash, I can't remember now, but yeah. the, the Flash equivalent, even if it's not, comes up behind him with a punch, and he dodges, and Flash hits the the, the lockers. And then he uses his powers almost quite by instinct, to dodge Flash's attacks and actually hits him. And, of course, Flash goes flying backwards because he's just been hit by Spider-Man. And in theory, the alpha male principle would say, you've conquered the current pack leader, you are now the pack leader. But the nature of the pack rules in school is never like that. No matter what you do, you're not going to be accepted Unless you do it by the one method of, you know, of, of, of confidence and being who you are and, and, and establishing that. If you try and go any other route, in this case, defeating Flash, you still get ridiculed and you still get bullied because they turn around to him and say, God, you are a freak, Peter, you know. Yeah. So even though he's kind of tried to step up and play them at their own game in this sense, they still won't accept him. And I think that's, that's such a good portrayal of, of that particular connection between you know the nerd and and uh, uh, and the popular kids. Yeah, and don't I know they did do the bit where he gets rejected by the cheerleader in 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 spectacular, and it, and it, it does work, you know. But there, that one moment in that film was so powerful for me of uh, of of what it meant to be Peter that I've I've not forgotten it, and I don't think it's anything has quite surpassed it yet. Mm-hmm. Plus, I think that in spectacular, certainly the the level of bullying seems quite tame uh, by comparison no one's beating him up really um they're just playing pranks on him all the time and yes. just makes fun of him and you know but they don't they don't seem to be disheartened by having him around you know when he's around they're they're okay with it and i wonder if that's a a conscious thing to kind of we can't show the bullying to be too brutal because young kids will be watching you know be... it probably is but although Although it opens up questions, uh, I'll say from experience, most bullying, I don't think, was or is or will be physical. Yeah. So I think that that occurred in that TV show was was realistic enough. And a, a 
it probably wasn't as nasty and therefore that's what they had to tone it down to make it acceptable to kids because you don't want to watch something too brutal but in terms of the fact it was all pranks and jokes i think that's quite realistic yeah yeah and it's uh, it means that you can have meaningful interactions with them as well without it descending into you know and just constantly being hassled you know there's uh, there's episodes where he has to um, where he has to go to events with them and things like that and you even get that, that moment when Aunt May's in the hospital where Flash cuts the crap for a minute and, and kind of calls him out on the way he's acting but um, he's the voice of reason in that scene but uh, there's all there's, there's all little, little bits like that and um, even in Flash's social circle there are people that don't mind him like Rand Robertson doesn't really care you know, he doesn't care enough to make fun of him or anything like that. Seeing on that point, actually, that got one of my notes has just jumped to my, jumped to my attention because of what you said. The Flash having a moment as a proper human being and standing up for the right thing shows that none of the characters are truly abused in that sense that yeah. they have nothing to do or they're one-dimensional. I mean, they're always tertiary characters, fine. But the secondary characters, I think they are all developed. And it's quite noticeable that m- quite a lot of people are not unused or or just pointed to be a butt of a joke because if you there's a few of the few of the side characters like the the evil chauffeur mm-hmm. that takes Hammerhead around. Uh, in the early episode, she is just a chauffeur, but later on, she's actually shown to be pretty good in a fight, be yeah. that a, a fist fight or with a gun. You know, she is overpowered by a top class supervillain, but generally speaking, can hold her own against you know most of the people that are there, and the police. The police aren't just brought in to be useless in the face of Spider-Man. They they can actually arrest people. They are doing a lot of cleanup. To be fair, they're actually getting a lot of ladders and getting a lot of villains down from lampposts. That is probably their first job in the city. But if you listen to some of them talk, they do get to talk on the subject matter. There's a couple of times where they say whether they think Spider-Man is or is not a vigilante. And... They never say anything stupid, I think, is the good thing. So they're human beings, and they're all worthwhile being there. And it's actually a good stereotype to break, where anybody on the right side who's not the hero is automatically useless to point out how good the hero is. The hero is just good, and they don't need to be used as a relative mark. And I really appreciate that. Yeah, and there's a couple of cops. I don't think they're named, but they're there all the time. Yes. You know, they, whenever they, the police cars turn up, they spill out of them. Uh, but you've got Captain Stacy, who kind of represents the police. Um, obviously, he's Gwen's dad as well. And, you know, just like in the comics, he's shown to be a fair-minded man who's, you know, he sees the situation as it really is. Yes. So, um, you know, you, uh, when Spider-Man's accused of being a criminal, he sees the imposter because... 
the imposter's too tall or yes. doesn't behave like he does. And, you know, and it was exactly like that in the comics. It's like, this isn't consistent with Spider-Man's behaviour at all. We should look into this further. And, you know, the contrast to that is Jameson, like, brilliant, he's a criminal. I'm going to jump on this. I'm going to ruin yes. him. And, it's like, and he has to write more retractions than, you know, than, than factual stories. But uh, in the comics, anyway, he writes a retraction, like, once, I think, in this... Uh, this show, but um, Stacy's a very good character in that sense. He's just um, he's very competent, of course, uh, but he's really intelligent. He, you know, he's able to assess a situation. You can you can look at him, and he doesn't get much in the way of characterization other than the scenes he appears in. Where, but you get to see why. Yeah, this is why he's in that position. You know, that's why he got there. Yes, because you know, he's clever and and fair, and you know, believes in the law and all that stuff. Yeah. They develop him more towards the later episodes, though, don't they, in season two, where he actually comes into the school to give them the talks. And, and then he's on. He knows who Peter is and, and all that stuff. And blatantly does know, yeah. yeah. I mean, you get the feeling that if they had have got a season three, that character would have then stepped up and been much more involved. Yeah. So, he, yeah, he didn't get much early on, but he did pick up. Especially when they were starting the Peter Gwen relationship at the end of season two. Well, that's what I mean. You can easily see how in season three, based on that, he would, you know, he'd he'd be much more important. Oh, definitely, yeah. And yeah, the the city is. I mean, it's quite small in the sense that there's only a handful of people that can gain prominence, but there is quite a large supporting cast. You know, there's there's a lot of people that come in and out, and um, they never they never switch out a, a character they've used for a random at any point. So you kind of get no. some development of these people as the episodes go on because they just show up again and, and they have more to do, uh, which, which is good. You know, it's I like a little lived-in world like that. You know, it kind of rewards your loyalty to the show by seeing all these people kind of move on a little bit. And it adds to that believability foundation as well because, like I was saying before with the foreshadowing, the other examples include those characters. The, the mayor... I believe, is introduced through a photograph on Jameson's desk before you have any idea who she is. And the show doesn't make a big deal of it by saying, have you seen who I had lunch with the other day? You know, you you feel like that exposition would have had to have been there, whereas it doesn't. It's just, yeah, there is a famous woman that Jameson knows. Oh, look, in a later episode, it turns out to be the mayor. And that photograph is exactly where it would have been in a previous episode without needing to mention it. It's just in the right place. Yeah, and I I love Jameson in the show as well. He's so so well done. The the voice actor is excellent. Yes. and I like the way he's, you know, he'll say, I'm going to explain in 13 words or whatever. And then it's exactly 13. And, and Peter's just like, how did you know? Yes. <laughs> he's very sharp, very quick. And um, but even then there's that bit of depth, you know, the, the ape, the uh, first Spider-Man film where um, he's asked where Peter Parker is. And he says, never met him. And his stuff comes in the mail. Yes. Uh, things like that. And when he does have to print a retraction, he he does, you know, but on page 42 and 12 point font or something like that I wondered if I, w- I wondered that that must be actually some sort of foundation in the comics without having seen it because it was the one thing I noticed that was done quite heavily in Tom Holland film was the the honour of all of the characters they were behaving right by whatever means they saw or whatever f- foundation principles they held 
and this here in Spectacular, yeah, Jameson will not give up somebody who works for him, even in a life or death situation. So it, it does seem to be important to the, the Spider-Man principle. Pleased yeah, to see it again. It's quite common in the, the comics where it would appear that Jameson's completely unreasonable and then he'd go say something that's actually kind of reasonable. Yeah. Um, but his vendetta against Spider-Man gets stupid after a while. And it's quite clear that he doesn't like Spider-Man for some reason uh, in the show, but it never really goes into why. And he and his life isn't consumed by it either. Well, it, it might, it, it's only a short sec scenes that he's in there isn't it yeah. I think to establish a true hatred that is all consuming and obsessional then Jameson would need to be on screen more and have to be involved in the plots more whereas here it's a character that makes him look stupid in the way that he goes Jameson goes too far into a plot line because it'll sell papers and then something is pointed out that, well, you probably shouldn't have gone that far because that's not who Spider-Man really is. You've sold a few papers here, but, you know, <laughs> that's not the way, that's not the truth. And so Jameson himself looks like he's done the wrong thing and his ego won't stand for that. Yeah. And that is why he doesn't like the vigilante in this. But it's not obsessional because it's almost just a, a work conflict. So I think... It was all they could possibly establish for the character that was there. And, and any more than that would have seemed a bit weird, I think, actually, if he suddenly became that obsessional. Yeah. I mean, the, the Daily Bugle essentially exists to justify how Peter Parker makes money. Um, that's That was its basic function in the comics, and they had to flesh out people that were in there because he was there a lot. You know, he was handing in photographs, so you needed to have people he would talk to and... Um, so I think, yeah, you get enough of Jameson to, to get a few laughs out of him, a little bit of depth here and there, but all in all, he's a bit of comic relief throughout. Oh, he is. That's mainly yeah. his main function. and then, But you've got other parts of the Daily Bugle that are um, that are quite important as well. So there's like, um, there's Foswell, a.k.a. Patch. You know, so yes. he's, uh, he's kind of an in into the, um, the criminal underworld through his alias and... Uh, which is quite cool. Um, again, that's a riff on the comics. Um, in the comics, he was a villain. Well, he wasn't a villain, but he was a criminal. And then Jameson hires him because he has that those connections and and so on. So it seems like they've they've skipped the he's a criminal part, or at least maybe that happened earlier. Um, and now he's just a reporter with an alias, which you know works. Yeah. It's fine. Yeah, it works. Yeah, I have no problem with that at all. No. Yeah. And you have Betty Brant as well, who's essentially his first love interest in in the show and um, the fact that she's she's 20 years old in the show I think which similar to the comics and you know she's a she quite likes him but and he's quite persistent and she almost gets caught up in that but eventually realises nah this is a bit weird they do that well with the story I think although I do you know I did struggle to see the age difference in the drawing yeah. so it's good that they establish their ages so exactly because I think I needed to see that and I'm not sure if that's a failing of of the cartoon or whether that's just impossible with you know that sort of art style yeah. uh, because they didn't look to, to look at them drawn next to each other I didn't feel 
oh god she's way too old for him yeah. but when you hear the numbers and when you hear them speak and he's a bit more awkward and she's a bit more confident they establish it well there because yeah. um, it should have been a bit eeky actually that he was so young compared to to what she was but you could believe that she could like his humor and she could be just carried away slightly and being persuaded yeah. you know you could sort of see that happening or doesn't want to break his uh, break his confidence by rejecting him at yeah. you know such a young age and whatever else but uh, i'm sure in the comics she's only about 18 when she's introduced the idea she left school early and got a job or something like that. but again it's the 60s uh, but yeah the, and i like how it played into the high school bit as well where it's things you know he he's looking for a date to the dance and and he's telling flash yeah i've got a girl coming with me she's 20 years old and hot and yes. it just sounds so ludicrous <laughs> and if everyone makes fun of him for it but you know i think everybody's known that um that kid at school who's, uh, you know, who has a girlfriend that's at a different school or that you met on holiday or yes. something like that. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, and yeah, taps into that. I mean, it is actually true, but it's it sounds ridiculous when from the other side. As it should, yes. Yeah. And then it turns out that he brings MJ instead, which is uh, different. Well, it's different to what was expected, but, you know, he still wins that bet that they make. It does. I think that's there's very few things that um, I didn't like about this show. And even this, I'm not going to say I didn't like it, but it's still quite noticeable. There are far too many incredibly hot female characters interested in Peter in such a short space of time for it to be quite believable. It It sort of doesn't matter because it's... 26 episodes and therefore you can imagine it would take you half a year if you were watching them once a week as a kid yeah. and so you wouldn't you wouldn't feel like it was all coming at you so quickly but if you binge watch the whole thing uh, as as I have done at least once then you, you suddenly you realise there's just these women just coming through the revolving door at him and it's like <laughs> oh yeah that's a uh, that's a bit too good. Yeah, but the timeline of the two seasons takes place over about six months. Yeah, that's yeah. that's too that's too short a time for one nerdy guy to have four incredibly attractive women be interested in him. <laughs> yeah. But again, I'm not. I don't really hold it against the show. It wasn't. I don't think it was bad. It's just it was just one of those noticeable points, you yeah. know. Yeah, they didn't have time to wait till season four for MJ to show any interest, you know, anything like that. But. Um, I think MJ wasn't necessarily interested in a relationship with him. She just, you know, she just thought he was all right. Uh, so she went to the dance with him. Then um, after that, they didn't really... She was part of the main... Well, she was part of a supporting cast, but she didn't really do anything with him at that point. True. Um, the other... There were certainly two love interests there and two side interests. I yeah, think was, even that isn't Liz noticeable. And, and, and Gwen, you know, the, yeah. the black cat, but that, that's only a Spider-Man. Which itself is kind of weird. Yeah, I think that counts. So I'm going to care about five incredibly hot women interested in him because it is still him, you know, whether they can see his face or not. Yeah. But anyway, as I say, I don't, want to, I don't want to get hung up on that being a bad point. I didn't find it a bad point. I just found it a very noticeable point. Yeah. And it's actually interesting now they threw all these kind of characters in a blender and had them there immediately you know because in the comics there's so much time between these people being introduced you know you've got a uh, so it's like betty's his main love interest for a while in the comics and then liz is kind of there but she's more interested in flash for 
pretty much the whole time they know each other up until they graduate. And then Gwen's introduced. And then quite a bit after that, MJ's introduced. And Black Cat's not until a long time after that. So they're, you know, they condensed it all very quickly. Well, if you if you actually analyse what they're all there as and their connection to Peter, then you do see that they're all different. And I think that's been done on purpose to give you all the angles that Peter's love life can go through all in the one. Yeah. And I don't know how many series they thought they would get. I don't know how many plot lines they thought they'd be able to go through, but they certainly weren't going to get four decades or whatever it is worth of comics, which actually needs this progression through serious relationships, casual relationships, and it, and it being laid out like that. But given that we quickly went on, well, not quickly, we went into, into in the series two, you see things like Shakespearean themes. I've kind of pers- persuaded myself that somebody has actually sat down and just wrote out what are all the different love connections, problems and issues that Peter could have and he's and and he's been given somebody in each slot, almost like an analysis of it maybe you know, you've got the person that's interested in you but you don't even notice you've got the person that you're interested in superficially, you've got a relationship connection that in the end doesn't work with black cats. You've got the, if you could be somebody that you're not, who could you attract? Um, and I'm missing one, Betty, uh, the being interested in somebody much older than you. They're, they're all a different thing. And it's possible that that's the reason that I didn't find it any more than noticeable. I didn't find it bad because they actually hit a different angle in the plotting each time. So you're still getting something new, so you don't think of it as boring or too out of the ordinary. You know, if you had four cheerleaders coming out, it would have just been wrong. Yeah. Um, I mean, you do make it under too much of analysis. I'm still thinking that it's a bit... I don't know, actually. Is it? It's not a bit too much white man power, is it? I don't know. Is it just because it's an interesting analysis into different relationship plot lines, or, or is it worse than that? I don't know. Maybe we should move on, not yeah. worry about it. Um, yeah, he has a different dynamic with all of those women, which is good. You know, it's not just, um, oh, look, here's the here's the other Gwen, but hot, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. It's not like, MJ didn't show up in, uh, as a scientifically intelligent person but who didn't wear glasses, you know, she she showed up and she was very much a free spirit and, and that's something that Peter could be attracted to in that sense because it's, you know, it's different to anyone he's met before, so therefore interesting. Uh, well, yeah, and I'm just, I'm still I'm just slightly hung up on this white man power thing, actually. I just want to go back to that, I think. Just trying to think, are the, are the women portrayed well? And I'm just thinking, Gwen, she's very intelligent, noticeably so, when... The fighting occurs and Spider-Man turns up. She doesn't stand in the corner and scream. You know, she phones the police. She's yeah. she's thinking. Um, and I personally do think it's got to be reasonable that when you're hung from a giant gorilla balloon, you do actually get to scream. And yeah. it's not a bad thing for your, you know, <laughs> yeah. your your it's woman power. Feminist. I would scream if that happened to me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and 
MJ is definitely part of the old scene. And she's she's got that curious, completely in charge of her self, whilst actually not being completely in charge of her emotions thing going on. But she's still confident with it. So she's certainly not... She gets she gets to decide who dances with her all the way through the show, I think. So yeah. so that works. And and Black Cat is a little bit less defined than the others, but is still in charge of herself. She doesn't unless she was ever defined by anybody else. Oh no sh- oh, who was it? Oh the other woman was. What's the other one? The other the other evil woman, Silver, something or other. Silver Sable. Yeah, she's She's possibly not a strong female character, completely defined by her father, but yeah. potentially, I guess, that is still very human, so why shouldn't it be there? Yeah, and she was introduced very late as well, so there was stuff they could do with her later that they yeah. never get to do. So, I mean, it's, you know, not everybody's well-defined when you first meet them. And it's no. Just, yeah, the idea. Here she is. She's also related to this guy. That's a problem, you know, and... But even Black Cat was, you know, revealed to be the the daughter of the guy that killed Uncle Ben, which was, you know, a departure from the comics for sure. And I'm not entirely sure it was necessary. I mean, it, I suppose it did help Peter move on from that incident in a sense, as in when he when he was confronted with this guy again and realised, yeah, he didn't actually mean it. You know, there was nothing. There was no animosity behind that. It was a mistake, and uh, he's willing to pay for it. And um, and I suppose it gives Black Cat something that would carry into the next season, where she's resentful of Spider-Man for leaving him in prison or something. Yeah, we might. Well, I would never know what they planned with that. It was yeah. no. But it was one of those. Oh, of course, she's the daughter of that guy because you know this New York has twenty people in it. <laughs> so well, yes, yeah. And I mean, I'm not sure. Well, I didn't. I wasn't too keen on that reveal because I don't think they did enough interesting with it. Um, it brought her into the prison, which is what it needed to do, and, and yeah. therefore it was a bit subject to the whims of the plot. Yeah. And then, I mean, confronting uh, confronting that guy once again, after he's been through a bit as Spider-Man and learned some lessons, and he's learned a bit more about how the world works, and getting to that point where you can, well, not quite forgive him, but but at least see a different side to him. I think that's, you know, a really powerful thing. It was a good, it was a good plot development for Peter. Yeah. As you say, putting Black Cat in there was, was, was not necessarily impossibly, was only added to have the other side of an argument put in. So there could be two sides to debating the proposal put by the man himself because he comes along and says I'm this I'm that and but I've chosen my route after the fact but then you want someone to be saying I'm pro this guy and I think he deserves good things to happen to him and somebody to say I'm against this guy and Peter can't do that by himself so it does need somebody if you want to present this argument of this is the killer should we help him and let him find his redemption or should we let him fall to do that? You need, you need two sides of an argument. I mean, he could have provided it himself, I suppose. He could have said, let me live and, and almost have been begging Peter or trying to persuade Peter to do it. But it, 
it pr- I think I'm happier that it was a second person. The fact that it was Black Cat, which is another main uh, character, suddenly pushed into the prison might have felt a bit crowbarred in. Mm. But I'm certainly happy the argument was done by a third person rather than the, than the, the guy himself. Because he might have had a hard time trying to persuade a superhero who could quite easily knock him out with a flick of his wrist that not to do something. Whereas Peter has to listen to Black Cat because she could go toe to toe with him. Yeah. So I definitely see why they've done it, and I, I, therefore I don't say it's bad. It definitely had a real plot purpose. It's just that I can understand why you would think that. Why did it have to be her? Because it feels too convenient that she was also connected into this as well as Peter was. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's just one episode, and you have no idea what Black Cat's arc would have been afterwards, so... No, and she is truly freaking awesome. I mean, as a character, I don't fanboy very often, but if I did (laughs) want to go fanboy, I would go over Black Cat and this show. She's one of the more problematic characters in comics because she's that kind of seductive... um, adventurous side that peter never really nurtures and you know she is kind of um male gaze written a lot um, and it's kind of awkward and there's an element of it in this version but um but it's not too overblown i don't think tell me something about the scenes there as somebody's read the comics and seeing as we're on black cat the upside down kiss who did it first and who copied who uh, I think the Raimi Spider-Man film was the first film to do that. Really? Yeah. And when was that one set? When 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 is the Raimi Spider-Man? It came out in two thousand and two. Two, right? So it's six years ahead of this, right? So I think yeah, they blatantly stole that then. Well, homaged, perhaps. Homage. Oh okay. Yeah. Fair yeah. enough. I mean, it's it's a Spider-Man property, so therefore referencing other versions of Spider-Man is is all well and good. I think you know the. Um, oh, right, okay. But I like that the Peter's um, reaction is like, oh, I had no idea you felt that way about me. And she's just playing with him and disappears. Yes. You know? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Because he's not ever encountered that before and he's never, he, you know. Well, yeah, yeah. and he's 16. I mean, yeah. you, you, you've got to be thinking that if Black Cat ever did actually take the mask off fully, she'd go, you're 16? Oh, my God, that's disgusting. Get away from it, you know. Yeah. Well, that's exactly Because otherwise, again, it's... Comics. Well, and, and that makes a lot of sense because there's a natural human reaction you'd want to see. You know, it would, it would work really well. Unless this version is um, only 18 or something. But again, it, it's hard to tell how much older she is than him by just how she's gone. I can't believe that, that the way but the way it's portrayed, the way she speaks, moves. And she is, I mean, I don't know if it quite goes to innuendo, but she is no holes barred. There's no way she's 18. She's got to be older than that, you know. I mean, early 20s, fine, but still. Yeah, it doesn't help that she's voiced by Trisha Helfer, who's like in her 40s or something. Or late Uh, by the time this is airing, you know, but. No, um, but yeah, she's she's exactly the right person to be doing that voicing. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. so, yeah, so that's a bit of a kind of formative bit on Peter. And kind of circling back to his kind of supporting characters, we haven't talked about Eddie Brock, who's very important, I mean, both in his life and in the show. And they went with the Ultimate Spider-Man comics version, almost, um, where they, where their parents knew each other. 
except in Ultimate Comics, he didn't re-encounter him until a bit later on. But in this part, in this one, they've been part of each other's life for a long time. And Eddie's a bit older, so he's like college age, which is fine. And um, so he's a big brother to Peter, which I find quite an interesting dynamic because it uh, it works through the the first season, and you sort of see the the disintegration of that relationship happen gradually, which is good. Absolutely, that was very well done because he's in it right from the start. As I say, he's, in, he's one of the setups when we're talking about how many people there are on screen at once and he's in there and you have a very believable disintegration from very supportive older brother, disappointed older brother, disconnected old friend down to actually then finding reasons to dislike him and eventually, of course turns up the suit and it all goes horribly wrong but you've got defined stages throughout many episodes that gives you a, a believable progression absolutely yeah well i like the way it started where he takes where peter gets the photograph of the lizard and uh eddie doesn't he's disappointed he didn't call the police you yeah know, he's just sitting there taking photos absolutely uh, and later on it, get, it gets and he forgives him for that, or he, well, he doesn't forgive him, he forgets about it, or pushes it aside, because he just says, like, don't go all emo, whatever, it's done. Uh, but, yeah, he doesn't really forgive him, he just kind of, yeah, okay, that's that's happened, I'm just going to let it slide this once, and then as time goes on, it just, the more Peter does, because of being Spider-Man, just, you know, Eddie starts to blame him for everything that goes wrong in his life, yeah. which is, you know, which is a lot. So again, when the, the symbiote disappears, Peter takes that photo, you know, you didn't do anything, and I've lost my job, and here we go, you know, it's it's the dis- complete destruction of this kind of close relationship, and you feel it because it's, they are so close to begin with. I can only add to that that, yeah, I agree, I think his, his uh, foundation through to villain is... Has, yeah, worked really well. I think you do that with a lot of them, though. They do very well build up yeah. quite a lot of the people. I mean, you got Harry as well, who's who's built up to what you assume is villain. We are in post-spoilers, aren't we? So I can say yeah. that. Um, his build-up is exactly the same. He's, he's, he's uh, his friend. He's constantly betrayed by his, his work colleague not his friend not coming and helping him with his homework he's then blasted by his his father for not being as good as this other guy and this other guy that harry's not even as uh, not even being able to live up to is also not very reliable from harry's perspective yeah. so he's being battered on all sides by people who are not supporting him and he doesn't know what to believe so his world turns upside down several times and even when he gets his shot at at being with the it crowd, it's only because of his money, and they still don't accept him all the way through. And it takes him a while to see it. Yeah. That as well is, and it's like like Eddie. They are both progressive build-ups where the character slowly changes until some inevitable horrible conclusion, um, or not, as in the case of Harry. But you believe it, you know. You yeah. you you wouldn't you don't question it at all. That he well, could be Green Goblin. Yeah, well, I mean, Harry doesn't... Well, he does follow it with Peter at one point, but not for long. Uh, they do make up. Um, 
but he's all uh, towards that end point. He's always glaring at him. Peter does yeah. something, and it takes the scene away from Harry. Yeah. You know, there's even that point later on when Harry's in the it crowd, he starts to ignore Peter. He starts to push him away. He starts to go with his with his uh, his football, you know, colleagues. Yeah. Uh, so he's he's definitely turned his back slightly, and it's not um, it's not the same as Liz. When Liz has that moment in one of the episodes where she realises she's talking to a nerd and the, fo- and the, the popular crowd comes up yeah. and she suddenly turns on Peter and says something horrible to him. But then they do one of those shots where they show you that she's emotionally upset by that and they show her face. Yeah. Then you get that with Harry. Harry's very much, well, screw you, I've found my place. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't realise they've not properly accepted him. He thinks they have and he moves on. You know, He's quite happy with that. Yeah. And I like the relationship they build with Norman as well, between Harry and Norman. You know, the, there's the bit where he complains to um, to Norman about the fact that Peter didn't show up to help him with his homework. And he's like, stop blaming other people for your own, yes. your own shortcomings. Because like, Norman is this self-made man. He's earned everything he's got. And, and he just doesn't tolerate weakness. And Harry does have a lot of weaknesses. And obviously he's lacking in, he's lacking in nurture. You know, you get that. You also get that cliched shot of the dinner table, you know, where they're sitting on the other side yeah. of a massive dinner table. And I think that's Norman and his wife are doing that. Yes. And it's just huge. You know, it's it, it's pretty obvious. But again, it's that narrative shorthand thing. It's like this guy is, you know, this, this guy has achieved a lot, but he's not close to anyone and he won't let himself be close to anyone because emotion's a weakness. You know, And as long as it's done well i don't think you suffer from it the fact that it is in there is these horrible biting comments because they spend a lot of time through season one where norman is just a a secondary character as far as peter's concerned he might actually very well be creating the vulture and the rhino and so on but it's just a business interest it's no more than that he's not going for peter you know it's and the these connections to to Harry are just this occasional undermining comment that yeah. comes throughout lots of episodes. So he's well built up, stereotypical as it might be. It's not to the extent that it's boring or annoying because it's used as foundation. Yeah. And you've also got the, like, Norman is, he's very kind of calculated as well. You've got the, you know, when he's, it turns out that he's framed Harry as the goblin, you know, he's sprained his ankle. Which, by the way, yeah. is awful. Um, <laughs> There's there's very few things I don't like about this uh, about this show, but seeing as you brought it up, I have yeah. to go with that final scene where it turns out not only is he the green goblin. Right, I'm really going to spoiler it, so if anybody doesn't want to know about the end of season two, you got to stop now. Turn back <laughs> on in five minutes. But but it's, so he turned. Not only is he actually the main villain after some pretty good red herrings, mm-hmm. but he also survives and he's in his holiday Hawaiian shirt and he doesn't look to camera. Oh, oh. It was just <laughs> I did not like any part of that whatsoever. It's just so cringeworthy. Well, the whole rest of the show so clearly dodges the cliches yeah. and the ridiculous. And sometimes I admit, sometimes it comes a bit close to, to the ridiculous, one, but but still manages to dodge it. This one time, they crash through the barrier. To be fair to them, if you're going to crash through the barrier, I guess you go as far and as hard as you can, and that's the way they went for it. But still, <laughs> just madness. Um, well, I thought prior to that it was interesting. I mean, I remember reading an interview with, um, I think it was Greg Weissman, the the 
effectively the showrunner. Um, he was talking about how he wanted the the mystery of he wanted the identity of the Green Goblin to be a mystery again because it hasn't Good. been ever since the you know um, that would have been great. The Raimi film doesn't treat it as a mystery. You know, it shows you what Norman Osborn becomes right away. So they yeah. wanted that to be a mystery. So throwing in the red herring that it was Harry in season one really worked because I actually yes. wasn't expecting it. Um, and Peter had made up his mind that it was actually Norman by that point as well. So when it's revealed to be Harry first, I was like, oh, well. So is Norman going to take up this mantle later or what's going on? And I was so I was quite surprised by it. But then the, the reveal that was like, yeah, I sprained my own son's ankle to like get the heat off me that kind of stuff and and the limp was actually a calculated move that he was going to exploit later you know he wasn't actually limping it was like it was a a bit like the i anticipated your uh, yes you coming to my home and doing this so i i set up all this elaborate stuff to you know but exactly it was eight it was it was 80s tv special it was murder she wrote does spider-man you know it's just um, the best, the best thing that they actually brought up in that final episode reveal is the bit where Norman and Harry both turn to her and both go, "Is it Mum that's done this?" You know, and there's got this <laughs> silent woman that's been in the background, never gotten a word for numerous episodes, yeah. and there's part of your brain that ticks over and goes, "That's amazing! It has to be her. That would just be the best thing ever." Well, and then it turns out, no. Else, it could be. Yeah. Yeah, so it has to be her process of elimination. That would have been much better than turning out to be Norman. But but no, twist on the twist on the twist, and it wasn't him. It was a twist of the ankle instead. Yeah, get out. Yeah. And I think yeah. I was... Um, I don't know, I, th- I think when I first saw the reveal, I was a bit... I'd almost... I dismissed the whole idea of this weird wonder drug just suddenly making him a criminal mastermind. And, you know, because it's like, what you know about Harry is he's not, like, he's not that clever. He's not able to do what the goblin was doing and the the drug wouldn't real wouldn't necessarily bring all that out in him. Um and it turns out that it didn't because of course Yes. <laughs> Which is a bit that's one of those things though, isn't it? It's where you go, Oh, I was right and it's disappointing yeah. because it's just you know, yeah, it's just a truth. Yeah. So it's a bit of a shame. But the thing is, if I just forget that one part otherwise the green goblin I think was pretty damn excellent. It's a little bit Mark Hamill. So if you've seen that in in the in the Batman cartoons, you you can't help but think, oh, have you sort of copied that as a base principle? However, as a Nazi villain, I was still enjoying it enough not to be too upset by that comparison. Yeah, and it's. Um and it's really good how he weaved in and out of the criminal underworld doing his own thing. You know, it was uh, uh, he was clearly opposed to everybody, but the the motivation for it remains unclear. You know, why was he trying to cause this much unrest between the rival gangs and things? But it's, um, it was, I found it interesting. He was poaching Tombstone's henchmen off him, yes. and there was that you know that scene in the the dinner party and uh, um, where Tombstone makes that reference to yeah. Uh, it's a big risk, especially when you've taken so many, you know, looking at the, the two guys in pumpkin masks. Yes. Like, you used to work for me and I'm going to find out who you are and then there'll be trouble. But this is, the, this, is the, this is another reason why I don't like the reveal at the end because the Green Goblin's motivation works perfectly as Harry's alter ego. Harry is not in control of his life. He is put upon by everybody and doesn't really 
know where he's going. Give him some drugs, his brain can't handle it, the chemistry goes wrong, and out comes this alter ego who takes charge of everything, who puts everybody else down, who puts himself first, and knows exactly what he wants. I'd like some ultimate world-mending power, please, if you could have some of that. I'd like that from everybody. If you'd all just bow down. So, as Harry's alter ego, it's too good. And then it turns out, oh, it's Norman, who, as you say, doesn't have a reason for doing this, unless he's just mistaken and the serum has changed his brain chemistry too, in which case you've got somebody who is a clever mastermind who's just been given megalomaniac tendencies. So I actually have talked myself into it. If, as, long as, the, as long as the drug is altering his brain, it takes that mastermind, adds more megalomania, and the goblin wants to control everything. Yeah. I want, I want, I don't, I, want, I don't, I want to control business. I want to control the top, the top of the city. I want to control the underworld. I want to control everything because I should be in charge. So it, it sort of does work, but because it, that's undermined by the fact that because they've set up Harry so well and it fits Harry even better, you think it's disappointing that it's Norman because it, it just works on paper, whereas Harry works from all angles. Yeah. Well, the biggest thing, almost the biggest clue as well, is that the Green Goblin is clearly a bit taller than Harry is. Yeah. That's <laughs> actually, I think, is again a bit disappointing. Maybe I would have wanted that to be somehow hidden. Yeah. Because um, you're right, they, because they pointed out that uh, Captain Stacy works out from Spider-Man that way, therefore they are thinking about it, therefore they have drawn the characters correctly. Yeah. Then you you suddenly realise that they've they've put this Easter egg in for you to find and know about, but unfortunately it leads me to disappointment because <laughs> even though physically is the right size to be the Green Goblin, yeah. Norman Osborn is not anywhere near as good emotionally as Harry is to be the Green yeah. Goblin. Yeah, and and they don't do any work on explaining why Norman decided to become the Green Goblin as well. He just is. Presumably, yeah, season three, they might have gone into this. Well, he became megalomaniac. He yeah. decided he just he's just not in control. He thinks he is, but he's not. And they could have they could have built that up. Well, it's normally exposure to his own chemicals causes him to go nuts. And yeah, goes, you know, but and he develops this alternate personality kind of idea. And um, he would have just pursued that. I'm, yeah, I'm probably, probably. But yeah, it would have. But it wouldn't have been as good. Oh. So I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have missed that. I have to yeah. say. Plus, yeah, everything about Norman is very calculating and very deliberate, and the Goblin's the opposite of that in a lot of ways. I mean, he does have, he clearly has some kind of plan, but it's almost as if he's just inciting chaos just for the fun of it. And and speaking of, of that, as I say, I don't really fanboy very often, but I did really just enjoy the Green Goblin just for fun. Yeah. And I've got a request, actually. Seeing as you put in your wee noises for your spoiler warnings... Can we have the Green Goblin's bomb explosion in the that's little funny. scream that's yeah. a bit um, Michael Jackson like? Because yeah. that's just amazing. Yeah. I think you should put that in. Put that in a few times just to <laughs> just to liven it up. That'd be great. Shame so much. No one's swearing all the time. It would be a perfect swear cover. I can put some swearing in if you want. I'll I'll swear a couple of times and give you a chance to use it. There we go. Well, uh, feed it in. Yeah. Um. So yeah, the Goblin's a, a villain in, who's there throughout, and I quite like that, that he shows up throughout. I mean, it's not that... We're going to deal with this in one episode. The mystery exists 
throughout the entire first season, then it turns out it continues into the second season. But he's gone for most of the second season because the whole idea is, Harry's back and he's better. And then you see that point where his life is spiralling again. Yeah. And then the Green Goblin shows up again and it's that misdirect. And then um, and you get all this, oh yeah, it turns out it's this other guy that I fired, maybe. And then, oh yeah, I hired the chameleon to be me. You know, and all that stuff. But well, see, seeing as you bring that up, actually, there's something I noticed very much. I've taken a note about the difference between the season one and season two. Yeah. Because again, I'm, I'm pretty much would give season one ten out of ten if I was reviewing it. There's few shows I would do that, and I'm glad to give season one that high score. Season two, I probably dropped to a nine out of ten, which is still a good score. But the reason I would do that is because you start to notice the power creep and the push towards more exceedingly odd things. And it it actually comes in right at the start of season two and carries on with it. And that stuff about the, the red herring, it's first of all, it's this guy employed, then it's Mysterio and all this extra stuff that push towards a slightly more ridiculous. They say it's right there from the beginning. The first two episodes, when you bring in Mysterio, he's way over the top. The hunter, you know, he is, he's clearly over the top, you know, just this nutsy guy that decides to come and hunt in New York. Why? You know, what are you doing? But, you know, it's, it's, it's comic book and it's fine and it works, but it, it, it's just that it heads a bit more in that direction. Especially when you start noticing some of the themes that they use. There's a Shakespearean episode or two, in fact, really, but there's one where they actually start quoting from Shakespeare. Yeah. Um, there's an opera episode where they have a fight to the, 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 uh, I can't even tell you what opera is playing because I'm not that into my opera, but yeah. where there's the big three way fight between the villains and Spider Man. And then there's also another one where, for, where Green Goblin almost seems to take the Mickey out of it himself by deciding, right. It's opening night. I'm going to do some rhyming couplets in honour of your Shakespearean thing that I yeah. don't know is actually happening, but somehow feel the need to do. And it, these extra things, because they're just m- a bit more extreme, you start to think, did they have to put that in to keep attention? Because I was actually happier with the the subtleties that were in season one, and I didn't personally feel like I need them. I didn't hate them. Still give it a 9 out of 10. But I thought, is that a direction they were going in? Because if they'd have gone into season three, much as I would have liked to have seen it, I wouldn't have liked to have seen that form of plot expansionism. Yeah. Um, Me being familiar with all these characters from the comics, um, I didn't largely mind these things. Um, I thought Mysterio was a slightly different angle what we've seen before. I like the fact that he pretends that he can use magic, but he can't. Uh, yeah. That's that's new. Before it just seemed like it was powers that he had, and then every subsequent appearance of Mysterio after that, it's like, why is he still falling for this crap? <laughs> you know, it's it's like, right, he uses special effects. You figured that out the first time you fought him. Like, it can't all be that convincing every single time. You know, so uh, um, it almost gets to the point where you have to give Mysterio real magic, otherwise he's no longer a threat. Um, I think they managed to establish it well enough, though, that wasn't too upset, because they turn, they turn in this, some of the magic, they turn on other characters. Yeah. When they're on the bridge fighting, they turn the, the illusory dragons against the police. Yeah. And you're sitting there thinking, yeah, if this thing came at me in a world full of superheroes, I'm not going to risk it. I'm going to dodge. Yeah. 
You're right, Spider-Man should know it by now, but the fact that they 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 they, they actually put mysterious powers onto other people, I think, still gives it some yeah. some legs. Because it gets to the point where uh, Spidey's spider sense will figure out that it's not actually a threat, and then that's it. It'll pass through him harmlessly. Um, he does use gadgets as well, though, doesn't he? Because the little goblin chaps are actually robots, yeah, the, the so it's not like robot, it's all illusion. Things. Yeah, those are weird. And Spider-Man hates them as well. <laughs> you know, he gets gets the point. It's like, not these things again. Well, Just, they they do actually fulfil a certain slot in cartoons, especially modern cartoons. I'm thinking in almost anime. Hmm. They're they're cr- they're creepy cute, um, as in they've got little cute lines, but they're actually quite you know jokes and yeah. and comments and oh no I'm going not again you know all that kind of nonsense but yeah. but they're actually quite demonic as well I, I think they would have been very popular with some parts of the audience yeah and, and they're like all the, right they were comic they were they were, they were just comic effect like Jameson yeah. really and I, I like that Mysterio was uh, hinted at in the first season as well he's part of the Chameleons crew yeah uh, he was just one of them like the the tinkerers there as well. Absolutely, more good foreshadowing. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, fits in the whole thing. And, and it's a slightly different twist on the uh, the Mysterio origin from the comics. As in, in the comics, it's uh, it's kind of an unrelated thing. You know, it's it's something that there's not even it doesn't even appear in an issue. It's just something that was routinely dealt with. He was a criminal that was brought down by Spider Man at some point in the past. And right. when the reveal happens, he's like, "Who are you?" I don't remember you. You know, like in the nineties cartoon, you've got this. You don't remember a helicopter explosion on a bridge, and he's like, "I get this three times a week." You know, <laughs> uh, and it's that kind of. I quite like that. It's just there, there's a routineness to what Spider-Man does, and he's not going to remember everybody it catches. Whereas that's good. I'm glad they didn't do it here because that's the kind of exposition that I really don't like. Well, I mean, they did I like do the it because spe- you had the bit where it's like, "Remember me?" and he's like, "Oh yeah, you were the." You know, and he and he gets the wrong. He makes the wrong prediction. He says, "But the but the character the, was in the show. Yeah. It wasn't just. Do you remember this thing that happened between us before the show even started? And I'm trying to set up a foundation plot point here so we can just move on. Exposition, exposition. Yeah. The character was already in it. You know, even when you got the Rhino and um, Sandman, they're in it. Yeah. They don't even that we we understand that they've been arrested before, but in the show they're arrested here." Spider-Man catches them here. You know, it's not yeah. just we, we've got this assumed relationship on screen. It's all built up, and I much prefer that. I mean, it's a good joke. You know, I, no, I'm sorry, I don't remember you. I'm more important to you than you are to me. Sorry, you lose. <laughs> it's not a bad joke, yeah. but because I hate exposition so much, and I'm so proud and pleased to see the the lack of exposition in this spectacular Spider-Man. I'm just glad that they did it this way. Yeah. And, um, so yeah, Mysterio, um, I didn't mind him. I thought he was okay. It handled quite well, but Craven is probably my least favorite thing about the, the show in general. I mean, I, I'm not a huge fan of that character anyway. I think that, but I think you'd probably like him because you talk about villains that have honor and he is, the poster child for honourable stuff, you know, so he'll give Spider-Man a fighting chance in the hunt, which is the important thing to him. And But, you know, the, the turning him into that weird lion hybrid thing just didn't work for me at all. Uh, because well, that, I think that's what I mean by the... In the comics. That's what I mean by it kind of gets exaggerated. Yeah. 
to an extent that I wasn't quite so taken with. I, the honor thing does fit in with the general theme of Spider-Man. I'm not going to challenge that, but it starts to get to the point where, yeah, is this guy a bit over the top? Well, the thing I mean, Raven in the cartoon, he's very the opposite of honorable, really. He likes to cheat. He's duplicitous, you know, and he wants to cut corners. So, like, he tries to take Spider-Man down on his own terms once. And then he's like, nope, screw this. I'm getting upgraded. And yeah. then he becomes far less interesting after that. Yeah, the other other villains are certainly certainly much better done. Um, yeah. Tombstone. Big fan of Tombstone, actually, as a yeah. as one of the villains, especially because he was trying to keep a a image that worked in the public. Although we never really got the explanation of how the public did not freak out at his white skin and sharp pointy teeth, yeah. which I would have liked to have heard. Yeah, um, well, it's like uh, they appear to have face. accepted that. Yeah. So let's uh, let's not worry about it. Kind of odd, but he's you know he's above board. Yeah, like, yeah, and that, um, that appears to be that appears to be New York's accepted stance on him. And all right, fair enough, we've dealt with this. But, yeah. um, but either way, it's just, yeah. Other than that, he's the the kingpin analog. Yes, you know, the nineties cartoon had the kingpin in that space. Yeah. Whereas you know, philanthropist by day, you know, gangland criminal by night. You know, and um, which is fine. Yeah, and it's it's good. You know, he's got that kind of he's got that front, and he's got that. Uh, that you know that that acceptable front and the the background to that is just seedy and and horrible and and I like the relationship he builds with Spider Man as well throughout you know where it's um, they help each other when it's well he helps Spider Man when it stands to benefit him Spider Man will help him because he doesn't like seeing people getting killed um, and they've got the uh, the idea that he's like, I don't really care if you stop a supervillain. I'm more interested in my criminal little henchman getting stuff done in the background. So, yeah. you know, you distract the villains over the supervillains over here, and I'll handle this. You know, I'll I'll just steal stuff in the background, and I'll pay you for the privilege. And um, which seems like quite a sweet deal when you think about it. But it's, again, that's the I can't look the other way side of things. It's nice to see. As well, because he is almost the end of level boss, that he is better in a fight than some of the other ones. So he is actually, at the start, certainly more than a match for for Peter. And then obviously Peter's skills develop as he goes on. But I think they get the power levels quite nicely in this because I forget which one it is of the the four. What, what, what's the name of the group in the in the in the opening episode? The four of them, the, the, the group that um, enforces. The enforcers are more than a match for Peter at the start because they do beat him yeah, in that they, in that first or second episode, and then he moves on and it, it. Yeah. and and then he, he builds up more, gets more um, capable, and he can start to take these other people. But then you bring in Tombstone, and he can then put Peter down. Until eventually you move on a bit more, and then we get to the opera episode, and then Peter's just about managing to to handle a, a room full of supervillains. You know, there's a nice development there. Yeah, and I think uh, I like I like how they handled a lot of the the fights as well because they they focus on the fact that most of the villains are more powerful than than Peter is, uh, so he has to think his way out of every problem, which is yes. great. You know, so 
that his first fight with Doc Ock is about keeping a battery away from him long enough for his tentacles to stop working. And that that appears to work until Doc Ock figures out that putting innocence in danger will help turn the tide. Yes. The first fight with Rhino, he's completely outclassed, uh, which is which is great, you know, and and the way he thinks his way out of that problem is actually unique for his fighting the Rhino. I've never seen that done before. I mean, if you look yeah, at any, if you look at any video game that Rhino's in, it's all about the you're going to stand in front of this thing that will hurt him and jump out yes. of the way just as he charges, and every yes. and you keep doing that until you beat him. And in the comics, there's very little difference to that really I mean there's there's a little variation but the way it was like your face is sweating for your whole body because your suit is not porous at all um, which is fine under most conditions but I'm going to put you in a steam tunnel and you'll be defeated and it's that yeah it's that that problem solving that, that defines his his approach to fighting that I really like yeah I think the same happens with the lizard as well the lizard beats him in a straight fight um, but then he has to work out a clever way of... I forget how he does it, but but he, he doesn't win. In str- he puts him in, like, icy Oh, uh, that's it. Yeah. yeah all, he, so probably most of his his, um, his fights against the supervillains are, are, are won by intelligence yeah. more than physicality. And even in, in the second season episode where Sandman appears to die, even though he doesn't, and you've got the Peter appears to his appeals to his better nature because they establish early on that he's he's not a bad guy, he just steals. Like he's not he's not a murderer. And once he realizes that you know he's doing doing harm to innocence, that's too much for him. Yeah. So they did really good groundwork with uh, establishing the stakes of the fight and and using the kind of surroundings and using his intelligence and, and doing everything to make it dynamic and interesting and make the resolutions feel more like he just punches them a few times, you know, which tends to happen a lot in, in these sorts of things. Uh, you know, even in the 90s Batman cartoon, he would ultimately get in some kind of fist fight with someone and then he'd win because he's a better fighter. But I quite like the... Um, the, I need to use this environment to defeat this guy. What are his weaknesses? How do I exploit them? It fits the character so well too, yeah. because they made a clear point of them making him a scientist. You know, yeah. he is definitely a thinker. So, if they'd have diverted from that, it probably would have felt a bit odd, because um, he does think like a scientist in that sense of, right, you're a lizard, right? I'm going to cool you down. Yeah. That that is basic biology so so yeah that's very nice for that character yeah and um the biggest trouble i think he had was was venom because it took a while to figure out his weakness and even then the weakness wasn't exploited the second time out um or the first time out actually the 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 sound weakness yeah. wasn't wasn't exploited because i quite like the fact that he'd kind of purged all negative emotions and and appealed to the symbiote to yeah you can have me and you get that cold rejection on Eddie Brock's part when, when, when it leaves him for its preferred host. Well, that's a nice way of of putting in the true origin story, actually, yeah. as well, because arguably they didn't need to do the origin story, as you said before. I completely agree with that. We don't need to see it for those of us that have been around long enough to have seen it or have uh, it three or four times. You know, add the comics in a million times. You know, <laughs> but arguably any cartoon that is aimed at kids is aimed at a new generation of kids because you'll get a fresh stock of eight-year-olds and nine-year-olds and ten-year-olds and everything every year you know so there's yeah. there's going to be people that are 
that are still seeing Spider-Man for the first time in its current iteration. So it, it's not a bad thing for it to have it. And using it here as the emotional reason why he is able to then defeat Venom is brilliant. That's a great way, as an angle that nobody's really done before. Um, and I, I can't deny that that's executed very well because even then, yeah, he defeats the villain not by beating him up. Yeah. He defeats the villain by being his true honourable self. Yeah, and it's interesting how they, they did the kind of slow corruption and the suit changes as he becomes more under its thrall. Yeah. Uh, so it starts off as being a black version of his original costume and then by the end of the second part, or midway through the second part, it's it more resembles how it looked in the comics. Because and, and it gives you that kind of visual clue about how, how much it's corrupting him over time. Um there's a level of detail there that is that's that's not even unique. There's a, there's a few things I've taken notes on actually to along those lines where people have really put effort into the to every single part of this. When see when he's going through that transition, the scene change graphic is no longer spiders running across the screen. It's ooze yeah. going across the screen, yeah. which is which is a nice little detail. Um, Another one I wanted to give mention to because I was just so impressed by it was the when he's when Doc Ock and Spider Man are fighting on Coney Island. There's a part where Doc Ock picks Spider Man out of a group of fluffy toys, yeah. and it looks exactly like one of those grab an alien games. You know, we've got yeah. the claw coming down, and I just think that's a nice little joke uh, that didn't need to be in there. Yeah. And arguably is not a very important part of this at all because nobody talks about it. Nobody refers to it. It could have been a moment where Doc Oct makes a little joke, you know, a pun like Peter does, but it wouldn't have been right for that character. It would have just been because the plot needs it and I would have hated that. But as a little wink to the audience, that really works, you know, because yeah. we get an extra little joke out of it if you notice it, you know, that's... Yeah. That 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 detail is is just everywhere. Yeah, and there was a similar one where he's uh, I don't I can't remember if it's a rhino or not, but he, he saves a you know he saves a, a man and a woman from something that's that's dangerous, and he webs them to oh, yeah. hangs them from a lamppost, and then as he's moving past, he says, "You can thank me later, dude." Yeah, and then the guy smiles because he's you know been stuck with this hot woman, and he, he has no choice but to talk to for a little while. Yeah. Until until someone gets them down from there or whatever, yeah, Uh, you know it's yeah. There's lots of little tiny, tiny little things in there that you know you blink and you'll miss them. And the the kind of it's it's the Pixar thing, you know. Pixar they do the the obvious jokes for kids, which is fine, you know. So the visual gags or the obvious puns or whatever else, and then you've got that extra level for adults, you know, that, that can just watch it and enjoy as well so that one that claw game one you're talking about that's um you know it's a it's a little thing that you know be picked up on by older people in the audience probably uh, rather than younger people which is most welcome i think because even if i wasn't watching this i can imagine that there would be other people my age watching it if you know if if mum or dad is 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 eating breakfast with their kids and the kids are watching Saturday mornings. Yeah. I can believe that one of the 
two of them could also be watching the show and maybe get a little something out of it, you know, whilst they've got a 10 minute break. You know, I think that's, that's, uh, it only adds to it. It certainly doesn't do any harm. Yeah, don't talk down to your audience. That's what I always say about kids' shows. Because Did I correctly you know. notice, by the way, that something that must definitely have been an, something for the adults, mm-hmm. a Monty Python joke in Season 2, Episode 1? Remind me what the, the joke was? There's... I'm, I'm trying to... I've got my notes here, and it's not my notes aren't good enough, so I must have been writing in a hurry. Somebody says, what are you going to do? Bite my knees off. So it must have been somebody who was incapacitated somehow and couldn't have used their arms and legs mm-hmm. and so make this, they make exactly the same joke, joke as the Black Knight does in, ex, in almost exactly the same circumstance it could have been yeah don't see why not I'm going to have to go back and check that now I'm yeah. sure they put that I mean there's there's all there's the opera mm-hmm. which you're not expecting there's the Shakespearean quotes which is you're not really expecting which I have to assume were the, were the actual lines from Midsummer Night's Dream but they are disturbingly relevant to what's going on because yeah. there are lines in, there must be lines in Midsummer Night's Dream about a spider coming down and this, that and the other with their webs and, yeah. and bringing in the love matches and so on. And you're just thinking, it, did somebody just notice this and think, I have to do this parallel. I just have to. I need to make my English degree worthwhile, man. <laughs> Otherwise, it was all just a waste of time. <laughs> but, you know, or yeah. was it just a colossal coincidence? I'm not yeah. sure, but... You c- that you know, eight-year-old kids not going to appreciate that. That's definitely in there for the other part of the audience who just needs something, you know, now and again. Yeah, and there's, I mean, I think there's a a good amount of sophistication throughout the series. You know, they're 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 not writing a kids' cartoon. They're writing a they're writing a well-structured TV show. They they definitely are, or definitely were. Yeah. Uh, it's not like the Ultimate Spider-Man um, cartoon, which I actually like. Because it's like Family Guy without the swearing, um, but it is like Family Guy without the swearing. It's stupid. Right. It's you know, it's it, it's definitely for the younger audience, and it has its appeal. But I'll take this any day of the week because it's just it's what I want to see. You know, it's everything I want to see, and I would love to. I mean, I'd love if a live action superhero show could be half as good as this. Sometimes, you know, um, and with all that stuff in us, with twice yeah, as long to saying- do it. You know? Yeah, with, with all that good stuff in it as well, I did notice that they even managed to get on top of that a connection back to the old 80s cartoons I used to watch. I think they they don't linger on it too heavily, certainly into season two, but at the start of season one, did you, you notice that at the end of every episode, there's a reflection on the morality that we used to get in, for example, He-Man, yeah. and at the end, everybody would laugh in He-Man, ha, 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 we have won, and we have learned this new lesson, it's amazing. They do that at the end of, at the end of the certainly spectacular Spider-Man season one. He reflects back on a lesson. The first episode it's about family and and Aunt May, and I'm not, I can't get to my notes quick enough to say what they do through season two and three. But it's they put that in there. So there's not only are they managing to get something in for everybody, a bit for the adults, a bit for the teenagers, a bit for the for the kids who are the main audience. But they're also still fulfilling that role that cartoons used to fulfill when I was a kid, at least. How old I am now, God. But <laughs> of of not only giving kids entertainment, but based around an emotionally important plot point that even as a kid who is not 
a superhero can still apply to their everyday life because it's yep. to do with his relationships, you know, everybody around him. So I think that's missing, and I use that word on purpose, from some of the modern shows that I'm seeing. Yeah, I, don't, I don't think it was rude. I don't think it was unwelcome. I didn't mind it there at the end, actually, and saw a great purpose in it. Yeah, well, there was... The, the biggest example of that, I think, or certainly one that comes to mind, is when he fights Montana, a.k.a. the Shocker, in episode four. Is it episode four? It's where he finally gets the, you know, the photo- photography right after spending, like, three episodes trying. You know, mm. it's like, uh, this photo would be great if my arm were two feet longer and things, and things like that. Yeah. He just keeps screwing it up and he has a bad camera and, and then he's like, oh, look, I've got money. I'm going to buy so much stuff. And then... Um, and something Shocker says resonates with him about, you know, a man honouring his responsibilities. Yeah. And even though it's a villain that's telling him this, it's, you know, it stands out because, you know, responsibility is that buzzword for him anyway. Yeah. It kind of took that, you know, it's like, holy crap, even, you know, this is important to this guy as well. And he's like, he's a bad guy from my perspective, you know. And, yeah. and, and at the end of the episode, he kind of realises that he, um, you know, he has... Aunt May is his responsibility and he has to honour that and he has to do what he can to protect her and support her and so on. Um, that, that was quite an important one. But yeah, it does do that throughout. Uh, I mean, and I always like the, the little end, you know, the, the last second where you would see the spider logo in some kind of configuration that, that again fit the theme of the episode as well. Oh, I didn't notice that. That's all I've done. Yeah, you know, I've at, at, at the end of every episode, you would see the, the his face contorted in some way. So, oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. yeah so it would yeah. like turn into a love heart when he was with Liz, or right, yeah. you know, whatever else, um, or it turned black when he was wearing the suit and things like that. And uh, that's a nod to the comics as well, where they would do little things like that here and there. But but it also fits in terms of the tone of the show as well. And um, yeah, there's so only one thing I noticed that I wondered if um, I don't. I wonder if some of the things were purposely done or misjudged. There's one one that I noted down. Um, some, the humor is great. The humor is based in science as well, which again fits the character perfectly. So many times he makes a science joke. Yeah. There's one joke that I particularly liked, but I thought, is any kid really going to enjoy this? Where he, he's fighting Doc Ock and he says something along the lines, oh yeah, well, the connect, the arms being proportional to sanity is not being proved yet. Now, I just ruined mm. that joke. I can't deliver it well, I know, but, but th- just the word proportional used in a joke, I was thinking, is that, is that really going to work for, for you kids? But I guess these things aren't too... There weren't, there weren't too many of those, so maybe it was just a freebie for the adults, that one. And it's a joke you can grow into, I suppose. Yeah, I guess yeah. so. You'll get it when you watch it a couple of years later, kind of thing. Um, and there was a good thing about with Doc Ock as well, where he calls him an insect. And oh, and he tries to correct him. him. Yeah. yeah, and then later on he calls him arachnid. <laughs> so, yeah. And it's, a, uh, it's that little learning thing, you know. No, no. Oh, that's development. In the jokes, God, that's meta development. That's just, I'm, I'm even more astonished now. Yeah. Does he not say something like spi- insects have six legs, spiders have you know? Yes, he does. Yeah, but if Doc even learns, that's that's very impressive. Yeah, right, yeah, and that's yeah. So that just I think that just proves it. Then they've got something for every age category, and it does work. Yeah, yeah. and um, 
I mean, since we're on Doc Ock, I, I quite liked the portrayal of him as well, making him out to be this this meek kind of almost loser who's just you know put upon by Osborne and lacks confidence, and then he suddenly well, he goes. I f- kind of feel like he goes too far the other way once he gets his he's in his accident and he has the arms because in season two he's like well even at the end of season one it's like right now I'm a criminal mastermind and you know I'm going to recruit these six villains and all this stuff and he has his little underwater lair <laughs> god knows how he got that but you know things he, he suffers in season two from that expansionistic principle that's why I would I would rate season two slightly lower not I say not bad wouldn't rate it badly but it, it is things like that yeah that brings it down because it's just a little bit more, a little bit more forcing because it needs to be a little mm. bit more over the top because they think we're not paying attention anymore. I don't, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, or they sensed cancellation coming and they wanted to do this with Doc Ock. And, oh, maybe. Yeah, but uh, I think he's really good to start with. You know, he's. I, I like that you see him early on, like so many of the other characters. Uh, you get to the point where you know he even has the arms early on, uh, and he helps Osborne create these villains. And he's he's feeling kind of cagey about it because he doesn't want responsible for killing people. And you know, and his reaction when Sandman, well, when Flint Marco appears to be dead, but it just turns out that he hasn't reformed yet. Mm. And Osborne's like, "Sweep up, try again." Yeah. And he's like, "Holy crap, I've killed someone!" Yeah. And um, and then once he gets the um, once he's in the accident, it's all about I need this powerful battery for my arms now, and and that's his motivation for that first fight. And then, yeah, it goes a bit off the rails once he forms a Sinister Six. It's not to the extent that I didn't enjoy it, but yeah, yeah there is that almost natural expansionism principle yeah. that sometimes gives you pause for thought, maybe, yeah. yeah. Uh, although I did like how the Sinister Six could only be defeated with him in the black suit at first, because uh, it, it shows, like, yeah, he struggled with these individually. And uh, now he has to deal with six of them, and then the suit does it for him. Yes. And then it's like the second episode of season two. It's like, here they're back again, and you've no black suit to help you this time. And it's a really good way of building the stakes, because it's like, yeah, holy holy crap, he's not not in a good way this time. And it goes to the same argument as we said before about getting your power levels right. It makes every fight believable. As you say, it makes the threats believable. He's actually in trouble when he's in trouble. As, as adult shows could really learn a lot just from these really basic principles. Yeah, yeah, because you know how powerful he is relative to one of those villains because you spend the time yeah. seeing him overcome that villain, and and there's a bit of luck in there as he manages to lure Rhino at the right place, or you know Sandman's dealt with in the in the right way, or whatever. You know they're all dealt with through circumstance rather than him being actually more powerful than them and then when all six of them are together he doesn't have a strength boost it's it's yeah what's he going to do it's one of those things that makes me curse some people who talk about the i've seen it online i've seen people talking about the theory of 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 writing you know dramatic scripts and one of the things that every time i see it online i hate so much when adult shows they say dramatic license darling it's okay for this to happen because it serves the drama. And in my mind, any time I've ever seen that, it undermines the plot and I don't enjoy it. You, whereas you get this kid's cartoon where everything is set in realism, people respond 
as they would. Power levels are as they are as they would be, and, and the main character and hero just has to deal with that. Yeah, it's all just so superior because it means so much more. Yeah, it doesn't feel like they're cutting too many corners to get things to work. Absolutely. Like we've, we've built this world, we've spent time building it, and now it's like when these six villains are facing Peter when he doesn't have a black suit to enhance all his abilities, um, he's not, you know, he's kind of screwed. Uh, yeah. And he's also burnt his tongue on some hot cocoa at this time as well, which is <laughs> not in his favour either. So he's trying to quip and, they, and it's not even working because they can't make out what he's saying. Yeah, and, great detail. Yeah. It's, uh, it's all, like, wonderfully built and... Um, the Sinister Six, I like how they're just as much of a hindrance to each other as they are to Spider-Man as well. Which is, you know, well, well-trodden t- territory when villains team up. They yeah. have their own agendas or whatever. And so you've got like Sandman and Rhino, they just want to be, they're just happy to be teamed up together. But they're, you know, they, they're, they're not really interested in Doc Ock's big plan to take over the city or whatever. They're just kind of there because they don't like Spider-Man very much. Aye. Yeah, and... I think Vulture's probably the worst motivated of them, but... Um, probably, yeah. Again, not to the extent I didn't enjoy it, but... Yeah. yeah, he's just sort of banged together Ikea villain style, but yeah, it doesn't it didn't ruin it for me. Yeah, and they're mechanically used quite well as well. They're, you know, you're more useful on this, so, you know, we'll have Vulture swoop in and do this or whatever. You know, they... They build their skills into how, how everything works. and Yeah, it's all well choreographed stuff. I mean, I wish we saw this kind of level of fight choreography in Spider-Man movies. Mm-hmm. I don't think, yeah, even the, the sort of standard fights, I don't think the, the films have really built something quite as good as that, you know, at this point, because... No, being drawn, I suppose, must help with the budget. But uh, yeah. but even so, yeah, that's yeah, probably agree. Yeah, I think um, I think the films could be using his intelligence a bit more, and none of them really do. No, that's in the plotting. Yeah, yeah. and that could de- that could definitely be improved. But yeah. the the thing about maybe the cartoon, there's not such a requirement to have massive action scenes and glorious visuals, whereas films are always going to suffer from that now. So yeah. I think the, the cartoon gets a bit of a free pass there, and but uses it well, uses yeah. it very well. Although I was constantly impressed on a visual level by watching the fights. I was like, wow. They're doing some really cool stuff here. Yeah. You know, they're using his power as well. The camera's moving nicely. You know, everything's all all well established. You know, it's, it looks great. And uh, I think one of the better fights is the second fight with Venom in season two, you know, where it's in the school. And just the way it hops location and the stakes keep rising and, and all that stuff, I think it's really well done. Uh, it it stops Venom from feeling like a redundant character, which he could have easily done in the second second outing. Um, I'm going to agree, but I think I didn't, I don't generally pay, or for, for whatever reason, haven't paid as much attention to those scenes. But I, what I will say is I probably agree because I didn't notice anything seeming rubbish, boring, or pointless. Yeah. So it, although I have not appreciated it as fully as I might, certainly it didn't get in my way yeah. and it, it, it's it's good for that. Yeah, and I like the underlying stakes in Venom's return as well, where he shows up and he just says, Peter Parker is Spider-Man, then it kickstarts an investigation. And you see... Yeah. Um, and you see all and nobody the, believes him. Yeah, you see the different reactions, like Aunt May's like, am I being punked? And, uh, yes. and Flash Thompson's like... I quite like, like the scientists no who work it out. 
the, yeah. the corners who suddenly think, oh my God, that makes so much sense. We're leaving, yeah. no comment. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, Flash Thompson won't, because his ego won't let him believe it. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and you get the point where it's like, if you're not Peter Parker, take off your mask. He's like, I'm, just because I'm not Parker doesn't mean I'm going to tell you who I really am. It's, yeah. you know, that's like, your logic makes no sense here. But it's quite good that it kind of kickstarts this investigation because it's taken seriously enough, but not too seriously because it's, yeah, the, no one's going to believe this. You know, or no one who knows them is going to believe this because they know, no. you know. Um, yeah. It's good. And, and I thought, I think the way they handle Venom in general was really good. It's better than, I think the, the Eddie Brock side of it's better than in the comics because... He's when he shows up, he's kind of a random in the comics, and then you get his backstory later. But the way the f- he has a backstory all the time, and his relationship with Peter is very well established. So yeah, absolutely. And giving the suit a personality as well was a nice touch, you know. But which again, in the comics, but uh, but it worked for the show as well because it was this corrupting influence. And as we were saying about the the origin story. The suit was trying to convince him that his life is ruined because of this one event, and the way he defeats it is: here's what I learned from this one event. So you have no power over me anymore. So I'll see you later. You know. Yeah, it partnered his origin story very nicely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, there's sort of other villains we could kind of touch on. Um, try to think. Of the other. I think we've covered all the main ones. Um, one of my least favorite was Craven. I also wasn't crazy on. Jameson's son either no he's in it for one episode there and yeah well, I mean the, his son's in it for multiple episodes but the well, the Captain Jupiter's thing. in it for one or two at most I think he's Colonel not. Jupiter yeah Colonel Jupiter yeah. yeah got his rank wrong okay. <laughs> um, all, I would, all I'd say about him was he didn't really impact on me too much um yeah, positively or negatively, uh, I might assign him to a filler episode almost, but uh, but he didn't offend me in any way. Not like, yeah. not like the final reveal did. <laughs> yeah, and the uh, what other villains do we have? Hammerhead, who's well, he's a bit of a henchman, but he's a henchman with style, you know. It was, uh, and he's quite clever too. He's, yeah. he's quite in there in the plots. He can talk Spider-Man round on various points. Yeah, he, yeah. Was, he was good. Well, there was the flash drive plot point for a little bit as well. Yeah. Where it's like, do you think a flash drive would protect you? Do you think it could protect you? And You know, Tombstone has this power over people, but they make him physically intimidating as well, which helps. Yeah. You know, which again, that's the Kingpin thing, I suppose. Um I wonder why they just didn't use Kingpin, weirdly. But <laughs> um, I didn't miss him, but yeah, I yeah. don't know. Worked well yeah. enough as it was. Yeah, and it let them do something new with Tombstone, who was almost a henchman character in the comics as well. I can't think of any other villains that were really there. The Lizard was ferocious, but not much else. The The hook behind that was the fact that he was Connors, and, the, and the, there was a limited scope to hurt him. I suppose. Um, yeah, I think you've covered my notes on villains already, I'm afraid. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I don't think there was any other. Well, there was, you had the enforcers wearing their Iron Man suits, which wasn't the best. Wasn't necessary, really. Uh, but yeah, other than that. Yeah, so... What would you have done to improve the show if you could, if you could choose... 
I, I would have just taken it down a level in season two. Um, and, and I, I'll just call back on that point that I'd, I've already brought up because I don't think it needed it. I, there's, um, there's a lot, there's a big danger with a lot of shows that build up and up and up when they go into the sixth and seventh season because they've done all their main ideas. Yeah. And you know, they're starting to get a bit desperate. And I would have, I, ju- I just would have reduced that. That level of over the top that we were, we were seeing. Cause if you can do the character, the, the villains in season one without going over the top, then you've already shown you can do comic book without making it too ridiculous. Um, so I, I just tone it down a little in season two and keep the intelligent points that they had on how he defeats villains. Um, throw in the odd opera and Shakespeare episode now and again. Why not? But, but not ham it up too much. And then I definitely would have changed the ending of season two, and I would have either had I would have either kept it as Harry, or I would have had it as Harry's mum as a good red herring, <laughs> or I simply would have, as, as you said, the producer wanted to do it, have it as a mystery and left yeah. it there. But the reveal was just odd, unnecessarily so, in the yeah. same vein as the expansionism into a bit more over the top. Um, and especially because Harry suited the Green Goblin so much better, I would definitely have changed that. Yeah. Uh, in terms of improvements, I've mentioned I didn't like Craven. I would have done something different with him. Uh, the Colonel Jupiter thing, I didn't find it too offensive. I suppose it was a bit of a filler episode, but I'd have maybe just not done that at all. Um, I think I would have um, expanded his world a little bit in the sense of, you know, the you don't necessarily need to do anything with him but establish that the other Marvel heroes do exist in it. Because um, he's on his own and there's no reference to anyone else ever in the in the run of the show. It's just, this is Spider-Man's world and no one else lives in it. Or at least, not that you see, but the way people react to him is as if he's the first superhero to ever exist as well. Um, I think there were plans to cross it over with Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes at one point. Uh, but both shows got cancelled and they never did that. Mm, that's uh, a shame because that was a good show too. Yeah, that'll be another podcast at some point, I would imagine. Yeah. Um, Spider-Man does you... appear in that show, but he's yes. unique to that show. He's not the same. He's not this version. No. Yeah. No. Um, here's, a bonus, here's a question for you then. Would you have kept or removed the Stan Lee cameo in season two? I'd have kept it. Yeah. yeah why not? Because <laughs> yeah. that Stan has to be Lee. everywhere now. Yeah. Was he... Was it, it was season two? He was like down by the docks or something, wasn't he? I've got season two, episode one written down. I'd have to go back and watch it now to see exactly what it was, but yeah. that's what I've got. Yeah, it's a Marvel property. There's a Stan Lee cameo. I'm happy yeah. with that. No problems whatsoever. Uh, but in terms of improving it, I'm uh, well, I'm not sure I could have done it any better than they did. You know, no, I certainly couldn't. No. Yeah. Cause, yeah, it's just... And I'm sorry it's gone. I mean, I wish I'd got at least another couple of seasons out of it. The only reason they cancelled it is because the TV rights reverted back to Marvel and they went their own direction. That mm-hmm. was it. You know, they didn't want a Warner Brothers produced Spider-Man show on their books because there was rights issues. Such is um, the way of things. Yeah, so they just cancelled it, which is da- a damn shame because there was, it had so much more to give, I think. You know, we never got to see everything that it was capable of. And there was, there's things that are unresolved, and maybe they are better unresolved, but, you know, there's... I'm pretty sure it could have got another at least two seasons before it started running out of ideas and becoming stale and, and, and 
bottoming out a little bit. Oh, I definitely would have watched more. Yeah. Uh, I would have liked to see Peter grow up and go to college and all that stuff, you know, I mean... Oh, that, would have, that would have taken you into season five and six, so yeah. that'd be that'd quite a lot of it. Yeah, although I feel like even if it had continued, they would have ended the show on the high school graduation thing, you know, like, that's a natural that end point. probably would have been a good idea, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, more of it would have improved it for me, I suppose, and a little bit of a sense that he's part of a bigger universe in a sense although you you know you don't have to have Tony Stark knock at his door or anything like that you just have to have him you know I don't know acknowledge it maybe have the human torch fly past in the background or something like that <laughs> um, but it is what it is you know not everything has to be fully connected I suppose and this proves it you know it's, it's just weird that it's a universe where there's only one character that's decided to use their powers for good but it is so focused on his development emotionally that yeah. to put the Avengers in would have had a danger of making it more of an action piece yeah. than what it was, which was about Peter learning what it is to be a man. And yeah, I don't think I, I don't think the plot lines would have fitted in with the Avengers. Maybe you should say they could have had them in the background, like they had a picture of the mayor in the background on Jameson's yeah. desk. They could have had it in newspapers to set the scene. But the foreground plot just didn't need it. Yeah. Peter didn't need it. Yeah, it could have been... It would have been pretty weird if they'd crossed it over with Earth's Mightiest Heroes, considering the first episode of that has Manhattan risen into the, the sky yes. by a gravity-controlling villain. It's like, remember yeah, that? Yeah, it's the wrong... That was really weird. <laughs> it's, it's, the, it's the wrong... Yeah, it's the wrong thing. The power levels are wrong. The focus yeah. of the of the, of the of plots are wrong. But yeah, it's... It's great stuff, and I'm glad we, we took the time to sit and talk about it for a period of time. Um, if, if I had to pick up one highlight, as most of the stuff that I, that were that were we've all, that I would say are my favourite points, we've already discussed in some measure. Or there's one, there's only one that we didn't mention um, that I want to give time to, which is I am so glad at the end of the season they had a bit where Pete and Gwen tell each other how they feel, which is. Potentially a little bit of a soppy romantic thing, but it was built up through two seasons, and so it meant something to me. And because they actually did it in such a way that wasn't a soap opera, they had a couple of moments where I thought that he he could have spoken to Gwen earlier than he did, and I felt that it was slightly stretched out, but never at any point did this become an annoying teen drama. Yeah. And even in that reveal, but at the end, it was not, you know, they didn't keep themselves apart other than Peter being a bit of an idiot about it. But he's a 16 year old boy and you sort of expect that. So, you yeah. know, the girls are, girls develop emotionally quicker. Gwen knew what she wanted more than quicker than, than Pete did. Fine. That works out realis- realistically. But it was never a Dawson's Creek back and forth. <laughs> a Ross and Rachel just will they weren't like, dear God, do I not care anymore? Because they're yeah. both so horrifically awful. <laughs> These were both good characters. And I, I wanted them to get together. And they couldn't. They were blocked to getting together by circumstance. And that's real. Yeah. That can happen. Especially how they did it with Harry being in between them. That's yeah. very real. But they actually said what they felt, and I was just this massive, cathartic sigh when I thought, thank God I needed to see that. And that's, yeah, that's one of my the, highlights. Um, yeah, there's that There's that part where you've got um, 
Well, MJ says to Gwen, you know, Peter's still a guy. You know, he might yes. be smart, but he's still a guy. And then, Absolutely. You know, that's her perspective on it. That's her life experience has taught her that, I suppose. But, um, and the way the relationship comes together, because they're, they almost, it almost starts with them cheating on Harry and Liz. Um, yeah, very human. In the second season. And it's like, but they both realise, no, we can't do this. We have to do it the norm, the, the right way, you know, and then you've got Keeping that Keeping that honour angle in, which is yeah. very important. And you've got that point where Peter breaks up with Liz, but Gwen can't break up with Harry at that point because he's having a nervous breakdown. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. They're kept apart by the circumstance of Harry. Yeah. It's, it's, it's horrible, but it's very believable, very yeah. real. Um, yeah, and it's that, I suppose that's a bit where season two, all, you know, where they kind of draw a line under the whole thing by having him realise that. And he also reaffirms his commitment to being Spider-Man at roughly the same time as well. So, If it had have ended without those two points in it, yeah. I think it would have been horrible for us because we needed more. As it is, we miss it and we want more. But if it has to end where it did, as you say, he is Spider-Man and he is going to stand by Aunt Mary. He is a responsible adult and he connects with a love interest. So yeah. even though it, it doesn't properly end, it's a place where you can think, I feel like we've emotionally come to a point that I can be satisfied. Yeah. yeah. And I suppose as a last thing, we could just quickly, because we haven't talked about his relationship with Aunt May throughout, even though it's so important. Um She's the woman who raised him, and you know, I I think they struck a nice balance between the the frail older woman of the comics and a kind of modern sensibility as well, because it's clear that a strong breeze is not going to kill her, you know, like it seems in the comics sometimes. She's a very strong-willed um, disciplinarian as well, you know. She grounds him very early on mm. in the series, and I quite like that. It's like the your curfew is ten o'clock. If you're not home, there'll be consequences. Yes. Um, and and it keeps happening and and then you have the bit where she's ill, but she's also like she also doesn't depend on him completely because she sells a cookbook that pays the rent for a while and yes. stuff like that. And I think the relationship is very very well done because there is that back and forth parent child thing, and she's you know they both challenge each other, and uh, and she is forced to like put her foot down occasionally because he's mm-hmm. he's crossed the line. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's it's a good mother figure for him to have. So, but, you know, I just thought we should at least pay lip service to that because it is right, there throughout. Yeah, it is there throughout. And, and the hospital art comes at the time where he's at his darkest moment anyway. So it's like thematically it all ties together where it's like he's a... Well, he's not even aware that she's ill at one point because he's asleep. You know, he's out fighting the Sinister Six and... Um, kind of shows how wrapped up in his own life he can be and forget about things. Yeah, it's all good. It's all good stuff. I think uh, they they ticked all the boxes and more. You know, and I'd hate to call it just a box ticking exercise, but if, you know, and there's that kind of here's what I want out of a solid Spider-Man adaptation, and they they do it all. They get they everything. Do. They really do. Yeah, and hopefully the the people making the films are going to watch would watch the show and take some notes, you know. Yes. I mean, not what they do in the films just now is bad, but I still think this is better. It is. It is better. It's much more enjoyable. Yeah. Much more to it. Much more depth. Yeah. 
So unless you have anything else, I think we should uh, wrap up. I mean, it's hard to talk about an entire, even two seasons of a, yes. a show in in a couple hours, but uh, we've covered a lot of ground here, I would say. Absolutely. Um, and I think we've hit all the major points. I don't think there's any anything we're particularly left out. I didn't really discuss the Molten Man. That's one villain I forgot, but his gambling addiction didn't work for me because he's like 16. I think we touched on... Yeah. We, I think we, touched, we went through went to the villains, the, uh, the heroes, yeah. the sporting characters, plot. Yeah, I think we've... Yeah. The Molten Man was a, a kindred spirit for MJ as well because he was, you know, you know, I don't believe in relationships either and that kind of stuff, but he wasn't that interesting other than, oh, look, Liz has a brother who has some problems. That gives her depth, you know, I suppose. But, but other than that... Um, so do you have any kind of final points? The the way I would leave it would be that I think they've covered the best Spider-Man as a school-age character that I've seen. And in doing that, they also created a TV show that is executed so well in terms of lack of exposition foreshadowing that is all the way throughout attention to detail and and characters that are really meaningful and develop in a way that adult shows should sit up and take notice because the current crop of crap and I said I would swear so and let's, I'll throw that one in there for you to believe. Out. I don't think that counts the, as a, a swear word. I don't believe okay, that one. Okay, <laughs> the the current crop of f- <laughs> that, that we have to we we watch sometimes is it, it just pales by comparison what was done here, which would arguably be dismissed by many adults as a kids' show, and it really is just so much more than that. Yeah, and I, I would completely agree. Um, it's everything I want from a Spider-Man adaptation. Uh, I know a few people that were turned off. They, they wouldn't watch it because they thought the animation was crap from the trailers they saw. And I think the animation is quite unconventional in the sense that, you know, it's obviously it doesn't try to resemble reality in any way. But, um, and I was a bit, I didn't like the animation style at first, but it had grown on me by the end of the first episode. You know, when I could see what they were capable of doing in terms of movement and and. And the way that they, the characters express themselves as well. You know, everything comes through clearly and it allows them to do some really interesting stuff with the action. Uh, so the animation, I don't have an issue with it. And anybody that has previously dismissed it because of the animation, go back and just deal with it. You know, you'll, you'll get used to it. And even if you don't, something else about the show might suck you in. Yeah, I would agree. All, I would definitely agree. Stuff. Um yeah, more of this, and I'm sad to see it gone, and it's gone, and it's not coming back, and we'll have infinite number of other Spider-Man cartoons, and I remember saying that, that the ni- nothing would beat the 90s show uh, in terms of quality, and I do love the 90s show, and if it wasn't for the 90s version, this probably wouldn't exist, because it kind of, it was doing intelligent storytelling about Spider-Man, and you know, they're so the, it's an extension of that in, in some ways, but... Um, so it's not fair to say this is good and the 90s show pales by comparison because it is of its time and this might be seen as of its time later on anyway. But 
every few years we'll get a new Spider-Man cartoon, I think, and I just hope yes. there's another one that is as good as this one. Because yes. audiences deserve it, I think, uh, to see something as good as this. Sorry. We all do. And that's that's it, really. <laughs> you know, yeah, it was great. And more of this. You know, thank you, Aaron, for joining me for the spectacular Spider-Man retrospective. It's been great to chat through it. May it rest in peace. Well, there you have it. That was our conversation about Spectacular Spider-Man in its entirety. We both still miss the show and revisit it often, so if you've seen it before and liked it, just do yourself a favour and give it another look. You'll probably still love it as much as you did the last time. If you haven't seen it before and have listened to all of this, then you've been really badly spoiled, but give it a shot. You're probably going to like it, especially if you're a fan of the character. You're almost guaranteed to. If you like what you heard here, then please subscribe on iTunes, YouTube, or any major podcasting app, and join us on the next Neil Before Pod. (laughs) 